podcast where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Scott Campschafer, Licensed Clinical Social Worker, who will be discussing his practice and specialty, addiction. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hi, Noah. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. I haven't had uh, anybody on the show yet uh, regarding addiction, so um, this is a, a cool one. So uh, tell us, what are your credentials and experience? Well, so I'm a, a licensed clinical social worker, supervisor, uh, actually, and I've got uh, 11 years clinical experience working with uh, older adults, trauma survivors, men um, who struggle with sex addiction, um, anxiety, and just kind of general purpose mood disorders. Cool. Um, now, I also understand that uh, you wrote a book, The Five Pillars of Addiction Recovery. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, so, uh, sure. In my uh, work with, um, you know, the, the man with the sex addiction and then other uh, people who have various other addiction issues, I. I've kind of realized over the years that there's a um, it's a struggle for a lot of them to um, to recover without uh, feeling like they have to uh, just be totally all in on twelve uh, step recovery and um, and you know I myself am somebody who has benefited from twelve step recovery for uh, uh, alcohol use disorder um, and um, but I. I realized when I, I was trying to pitch the idea of going to 12-step meetings to a number of my clients who deal with addictions, they were like, oh, no, I, they, they would always find exceptions to it. I thought, so there's got to be some way to get give these people some kind of a, 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 a feasible path to addiction recovery without telling them, well, you know, it's either 12-step or you're just out of luck, Charlie. So... Um, I just got this idea when I was driving to uh, one of my uh, stepson's football games a couple of years ago, you know, there've got to be some basic principles of addiction recovery that I've gleaned that don't necessarily have to do with, you know, being a, you know, a, a somebody who can quote the 12 step recovery big book to people. Oh. Um, and so I just kind of distilled these five principles down when I was just kind of thinking about what is it that's made, my addiction recovery to the extent it's been a success that way. And um, I just came up with these five uh, essential concepts. Um, one of them is understanding. Um, another is um, community, you know, having some sort of supportive community, having um, some structure in your life that allows for you to kind of feel uh, like you're, um, in a stable place and um, coping tools and just this 
just continual choice of committing not only to the path of recovery, but also to yourself because mm -hmm. recovery is essentially for each person. And so if they're committed to the, to themselves, they're also going to be committed to recovering. And I use that concept of uh, recovery in a very broad sense, although this kind of focuses on addiction recovery. People who have depression, they're considered to be recovering people. I consider people who have trauma disorders to be recovering people because they're recovering from a disease. Right. So um, even though I tailored it to people who have addiction issues, it's meant to be this kind of for anybody who struggles with any kind of mental health issue. Um, so that's the very cool how it came about. I was hoping you were going to say what the five pillars were. I was like on the edge of my seat. I was like, what are they? <laughs> right. so yeah, I tried to, I had a you know, better memorized than one sometimes than others, but at this point, <laughs> yeah, I just look at the book, you know, I read the look for my, uh, uh, for my table of contents, but these are principles that I've pillars that I feel like I've lived in my life and they've allowed me to, be sane and sober to the extent that I have that on any given day. So I figured, well, why not just offer that up for other people who, um, who can use it as well. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you for telling us about that. Um, now in your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones, if not, why not? So uh, I take, uh, right now I take Medicare, uh, Blue Cross insurance, and I'm on the SIMS uh, provider panel. Cool. So, um, yeah, and the, the Medicare just, uh, I've, I've always had that since I started working uh, with uh, older adult clients a number of years ago in the uh, intensive outpatient program I staffed for Seton a number oh, of cool. years ago. Very cool. Um, and the Blue Cross, is it PPO or HMO or both? Uh, it's, uh, it's both. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, that's the other thing I was going to ask you. Oh, you know, I, I think it's interesting because like LCSWs can take Medicare, but like LPCs can't. And I'm not sure about LMFTs. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, usually, usually it seems to be like, uh, clinical social workers, PhD therapists, but mm -hmm. that seems to be it. And I don't, yeah. can't, I don't know exactly why that's the case. I've always just thought it was interesting. And I think that's good for our listeners to know too, you know, when looking for a provider, looking at those credentials on the last name, um, just in terms of if you have Medicare and you're looking for someone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So in your practice, do you have a sliding scale? Uh, no, not as such, but I do uh, have some clients that I see on a reduced fee basis. You know, if they don't have insurance, then they have to pay a certain uh, basic fee. But uh, you know, depending on their situation, I may grant some of my clients. And a lot these days, I often do. Ever since COVID came about, give them a reduced fee rate. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know exactly. Sometimes it may be considered a matter of semantics as far as like, well, sliding scale right, versus reduced right. fee. One, I think, is a little more uh, safe as far as like ethical considerations because if I offered a sliding scale ethically, I think I'd be bound to do that for everybody. And uh, I'm not, I can't do that for everybody. I don't have a formula for that. So uh, I go with reduced fee for some of my clients. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I like the distinction in language that you're making there because sliding scale, like a true sliding scale, relies on like household income and like poverty um, guidelines. And, um, you know, I think that would be really difficult to do because I, I do think if you do that for one client, you would have to do it for all. So I think reduced fee is more of an appropriate term, especially when therapists have like kind of like tiers of reduced fees. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just uh, interesting. Thank you for bringing that up. Sure. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments? Well, I used to see clients on Saturdays, but I haven't in uh, the last year or so, but I do see clients on Wednesday evenings. 
typically for my uh, evening appointment times. Cool. Is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Well, I spent uh, about uh, 20 years as a professional educator. Uh, I was mostly in the public schools, some in the private schools. And then I just decided um, I wanted to continue to help people out, but I wanted to do it more in a one-to-one way in a smaller group setting rather than, you know, like 20 some, you know, students in a classroom. Yeah. Yeah. I, my heart goes out to teachers, especially now, you know, and I, I mean, just, just sounds like such a hard job. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine teaching these days, especially with, you know, the COVID going on and having Mm -hmm. to do distance learning. That would be profoundly difficult for me. And then teachers not following under follow, falling under the COVID first round of vaccine stuff like that really doesn't make sense to me. Oh yeah. Yeah, me too. Well, that's very cool. Was there a certain like subject you taught or? Oh, so uh, I taught mostly uh, middle school math and science. There were uh, last couple of years I taught some elementary school and then uh, but yeah, I was mostly uh, middle school math and science. This was my my gift. Mm-hmm. You must be a man of a lot of patience. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, everybody liked to say that. I'm like, I don't know. I, I you know, <laughs> sometimes I feel patient. Sometimes I don't. But I guess I, I don't. Happen. I don't think I could do elementary or middle schoolers. Like I just know myself, and I mean, I don't work with kids younger than middle school, you know, yeah. even then I generally like to start at about 14, 15. Um, yeah, that's the same as me. Yeah. I, I found that with, when kids are 13 year old, 13 years old, they, they know everything. The adults know don't know anything. Mm-hmm. I figure, well, I can't do much with a 13 year old with that attitude. And then I figure, well, I might as well just see the ones that are not as intelligent as the 13 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. <laughs> you, can't, you can't help somebody who's smarter than you are, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, um, so what drew you to being a therapist? You know, I know you said you wanted to work more one-on-one. Was mm-hmm. there another pool? Well, so um, I've got a, a brother who's been a therapist uh, his entire career. And uh, I thought about doing it even before about the time I started doing teaching, but I was like, no, I, I, I could never do what my brother does. But then, you know, having my own therapy experiences over the years and reflecting on those and realizing how much I gained from my own psychotherapy work and my own growth uh, made me realize, yeah, you know, you, uh, you, you can't give what you don't have. And at this point, you've probably gotten enough that you, have enough to give away to other people. And I'm like, okay, so now's the time to do it. And it was in my mid forties, but you know, I know I'm mean, a couple of other people who've done that. They've been like in teaching and then they go into, you know, therapy or social work. And um, it's like, okay, so yeah, I that kind of validated my own choice to, to get into uh, social work and psychotherapy. Cool. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are your hobbies, TV shows you're watching, music, et cetera? Well, so um, I've recently, uh, since COVID, I started taking up playing golf. Nice. Um, I used to think golf was just boring (laughs) and a sport. And I started, you know, got uh, one of my stepsons got me a a golf video game. I was like, well, maybe I could actually try playing this because... It's, it's interesting when I play it on the video game. So I started, you know, I finally got out to an uh, actual golfing golf course within the last couple of months and uh, been doing that some. Um, and I uh, also like to play the harmonica. I learned that in the last couple of years so I can play some harmonica. But I also love to draw and write. And my wife and I enjoy some uh, TV shows together. Uh, like the morning show and uh, Silicon Valley and uh, this is us. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
and I'm cool. a long-time Trekkie. Oh, nice. Yeah. My my uncle loves Star Trek. He uh he has like autographed pictures all over his house. <laughs> he loves them so much. Yeah, yeah, I can appreciate that. And he has to be watching. He has to have Star Trek on in the background in order to fall asleep, really? which I think is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I I watch like Forensic Files, and uh, you know that that narrator's voice is just soothing. Same with like Robert Stack from Unsolved Mysteries. Like, oh yeah, uh-huh. his voice just lulls me to sleep for some reason. Yeah, I think that would be the case with like Ken Burns or somebody like that. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, okay, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about um, working with addiction. What modalities do you draw upon when you're working with somebody who has an addiction? Well, so typically uh, I, I go first to uh, motivational interviewing, which really helps uh, my clients to uh, explore the, their ambivalence because that typically is what ties clients up in knots and which also can drive them back to relapses is the uh, tendency to, to get caught up in their ambivalence. And, um, and so that's usually my starting point. And depending on their... Um, the stage of change that they're in and everybody's always in a state of change. They may not have realized they have a problem, but they're, that's still considered a stage of change. So I was good to know that that's something that's not a modality, but it is a way of looking at people and their, their situations. Sure. But um, I also tend to, uh, once you know, people are ready to actually work on their addiction issues, I, I use, um, either EMDR or uh, an addiction protocol for that or for uh, image transformation therapy, which is kind of an offshoot of EMDR. And that helps to resolve the, the underlying driver of the uh, addiction. Um, but um, I think group therapy can be really helpful too. I've, I've tried to start some uh, groups with my uh, uh, male sex addict clients and um, haven't really gotten very far with that, but there are a couple of, uh, Good therapy groups in Austin for uh, for men, you know, for folks who have addiction issues. Okay, what drew you to working with addiction? Well, like I mentioned, uh, you know, I've, I've had uh, my own struggles with uh, uh, alcohol use and uh, you know other compulsivity issues, and um, uh, just realizing that I benefited so much from the therapy work that I'd done around those issues wanting to, and seeing, you know, the huge need, especially with, you know, the opioid crisis and, um, you know, and, and, and COVID has just, I think we, we might, we probably won't know till it's over the exact toll that it's taken as far as people's addiction issues, uh, especially like with alcohol use disorder. I mean, they closed down yeah. bars here in Austin and Texas, but they didn't close the liquor stores. Right. And so, you know, people, I, in fact, when I was uh, coming back from the pet shop uh, just on Saturday, I had to drive into the Specs parking lot to turn my car around over here in Southwest Austin. And it was only 10 o'clock in the morning. I see all these people coming out from, it was like, <laughs> you know, you, you got to have your booze if you're going to be holed in and socially distancing. And like, you know, so at the, again, this is, just realizing the scope and the scale of the problem has helped to reinforce my choice to help people in that, with that issue. Yeah. And regarding COVID, like, I'm curious to know, and I know we'll probably never get accurate numbers for this, but like what percentage of people relapsed and what percentage of people like developed an addiction in COVID? Um, I think that would be interesting data. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Anecdotally, I can say, I think it's, it's definitely become a, um, it's become an accelerator for people's addiction issues. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 
So tell us what characterizes an addiction. Well, so um, I, I know that various people have different definitions of it, but I remember reading one probably about 30 or 40 years ago by um, um, author that I, I, and speaker that I like to uh, listen to and follow at the time named John Bradshaw. And he uh, described an addiction as any relationship that has life damaging consequences. Those were his words. Any relationship that has life damaging consequences. And so, you know, that, I think helped to take the focus off of just like alcohol use disorder, drug addiction, opioid, you know, and all that and expanded into, you know, compulsive shopping, uh, sex, uh, gambling, and, you know, a whole host of other, I am even uh, treating one of my clients who has uh, procrastination problems as an addiction because it's like, Interesting. you know, I'll put stuff off, I'll put stuff off. Yeah. And they talk about this, um, there's a speaker on, um, on the TED, uh, who gave a TED talk one time about, he called it, um, this, like the dangerous playground. He's a big, was a big procrastinator. He said, I get, I get caught in this dangerous playground where I know I don't have to do it for two weeks and I can have fun in my dangerous playground. <laughs> you know, you know, a day before 48 hours before, and I know I've got to crank it out. And then I'm like, and so there's something, you know, to this, reinforcing to this dangerous playground that people can get caught up in as far as their procrastination issues. And it's not until the 11th hour they come around, but then if they like suddenly get it done and they're like the star and they get reinforced for completing it at the 11th hour, there's a payoff to that. And then it can be kind of addictive either on the front end or the back end of it. Um, risk, risk taking. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, it's, I, I meant to, to, I like the concept of it as being broad rather than, you know, restrictive as far as what constitutes an addiction. I think in the DSM, I mean, pretty much any diagnosis, but especially um, like alcohol use disorder, et cetera. I think a part of the diagnosis is that it has to have some impact on social, occupational, et cetera, functioning. Exactly, yeah. And so that's one of the, the ways I, I screen for addiction issues in my practice is if somebody comes in and they say, you know, I've, I drink too much. And I'll, you know, ask, I'll give, ask the obvious questions, how much, how often. Mm -hmm. But then I'll always try to keep an, a year out for is how is it impacting your relationships? Do you have any relationships? They don't. That's kind of a sign. If it is, if they do, and there's, um, I mean, everybody has relationships, but like, you know, how many significant ones? How many, right. how many relationships have burned bridges behind them? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, are people alienated? Like, did, did their spouse bring them in? No, that's the kind that really. Um, I sometimes get a little bit uh, skeptical of people whose spouses or family members bring them in as far as like how much an investment do they have in their own recovery. But, you know, my, my stance at this point is I don't care, you know, how you got to my door, so to speak, is that the main, main thing is that you got there, you got here. And if you got here, then I'm going to do everything I can to help you, whether your spouse brought you in, your, your, your aging parents brought you in, whether your brother or your sister brought you in or a friend brought you in. It's just the main thing is you got to my door. What are some examples of more common addictions and what about some less common addictions? Well, so, you know, there's the obvious, you know, the alcohol use disorder, the, um, Opioid addiction, those tend to get the biggest headlines. Nicotine addiction. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't tend to hear a lot of people talk about um, marijuana or cannabis use disorder. I, I, I see a lot of clients who have use issues with cannabis or marijuana. Um, and 
I, I don't know for whatever reason I, I don't I'm not I don't get as concerned about them. I don't know if it's about this because of the social environment we live here in Austin. It's more socially acceptable, or it's gaining you know more social acceptance nationwide. Um, but um, you know, I mentioned that the that I've, I've, it really could conceivably be anything. But I think the ones that don't tend to be as um, recognized. Um, God, I, I I think gambling may be one of the ones that's less recognized. Food. Mm-hmm. Well, Compulsive overeating, um, that tends to be um, looked down on along with a lot of the other um, addiction issues, but it's not one that people tend to think of the recovery model as much for. But I've, I've got a couple of clients who have identified one degree or other as you know, addicted to uh, overeating. I know I'm going to out, but that's, those are the ones I can think of right now. Have you ever had like a, somebody present with a just really bizarre addiction? Um, well, I guess, you know, as far as like for the, the compulsive uh, sexual behavior, the sexual addiction issues that can come in all flavors and, um, like if somebody has like a, a, a fetish, those can be kind of uh, apparent is, you know, present as kind of bizarre, like, you know, like, you know, shoes or clothing or something like that. Whereas it's not, those aren't necessarily the, uh, the, 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 the hallmarks of the addiction. It's more like, you know, I got to have that to get stimulated. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I don't, you know, I, mean, I used to look on it as uh, bizarre, but I don't think of it so much in those terms these days, but it's not like, you know, well, shoes, really shoes, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the, to the outsider than anything, but for somebody else who struggles with that, they may be like, Oh, of course, you know, of course mm-hmm. somebody would get turned on by that. And it's not a question of whether they're turned on by it. It's a question of, do they have to have it to get aroused? And do they mm-hmm. go to it, uh, um, I guess, uh, to a point where it, it negatively affects their life and it feels like it's out of control? Like compulsive. Yeah, yeah. So they're not so much, they just don't have control over use mm-hmm. of it. And that's where, you know, people come to see me and I, I say, yeah, I, th- I think I can help you with this because it sounds like you do feel like it's out of control enough where it requires some clinical intervention. And that's where I come in. If they're like, you know, this isn't a problem for me, then I'm like, okay, so what are you in my office for? Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I guess I'll leave. You know, it's like, okay, well, we'll call it even. <laughs> um, what would you say are some risk factors for addiction? Now, that's a good question. Um, you know, along with a lot of these other ones, I think the um, the one uh, one of the things that I remember uh, learning in recent years, or if, if you're familiar with the ACE survey, I'm not studying. So uh, ACE uh, is an abbreviation for uh, adverse childhood experiences, and so there was a um, a study done by uh, Kaiser Permanente about twenty probably more like 25 years ago now. And they did a, it was a, it was a survey of like, I want to say like between 25 and 50,000 adults who were in their clinical population. And they surveyed them for uh, some of the things that they struggled with as part of their growing up years. And these are people who presented with, you know, chronic health issues, mental health and chronic physical health issues. And what they did is they distilled down uh, 10, um, the 10 questions that they asked these folks. And um, basically it was a, a, an assessment of childhood trauma. And they found that these um, individuals who uh, had experienced a certain degree of childhood trauma in the form of, you know, some sort of abuse or neglect or uh, parental um, um, 
uh, mental health issues or addiction issues, that they tended to have more chronic uh, health problems, both physical and mental health problems, over the course of their lifespan, the entire course of their lifespan. So the, the, anybody who's got significant numbers of the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, there's also trauma, general trauma later on, and then what I like to call, uh, or actually I had an uh, author that I follow called potholes. And people don't necessarily have to have trauma in their life, but if they had enough of these pothole experiences, they could be still significant, but not rise to the level of trauma. They could be develop addiction issues. And then just the general lack of good, positive, supportive, nurturing relationships. And it sounds like that would be considered a protective factor having that, the social relationships and support. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because um, if you, even people who may have only had one supportive adult in mm-hmm. their formative years, that can make the difference between um, surviving and perishing as far as an addiction is concerned. Um, and that's what a lot of I spend part of my focus is identifying those nurturing relationships and positive experiences that can help to kind of anchor people as they're, you know, kind of riding out the storm of processing some of their um, previous life addictions. And um, are there any other notable protective factors Um, or, you know, say somebody does have, uh, does have some adverse childhood events. Um, Are there protective factors that would prevent them from developing an addiction potentially? Uh, I don't see why not. Um, I think, um, you know, help-seeking is an important protective factor. Like if they got therapy uh, at an earlier age, that can be a definite uh, protective factor. But also, you know, just being part of a a supportive uh, community, like maybe they had a, uh, you know, a boys and girls club in the area and they got plugged into a boys and girls club. Maybe if they, maybe they had a caring teacher or somebody at the school they went to after school program. Um, education is absolutely a protective factor. Um, reading a book by a famous uh, deceased uh, congressman from the East coast who wrote about how his gateway out of, you know, poverty was just education. His family was pushing it and, and he just, that's, that made the whole difference for him. Yeah, I can totally see that. You know, one question that I know a lot of people ask is, how quickly can somebody develop an addiction? Yeah, so um, I think it can happen conceivably uh, almost instantaneously. I think what uh, the main uh arbiter of that is or determinant of that is uh if like somebody like smoked a cigarette because they're uh the cool kids were doing it and they wanted to be seen as cool they go and they smoke smoking cigarettes not because they like the nicotine but because they got to be one of the cool kids and that's what uh I consider it to be the birth of what's called a feeling state where you marry a addictive behavior with a, a reward, not just a chemical, but also social that gets that going for other people. It could take, uh, you know, it could take a long period of time, but conceivably it could either happen instantaneously almost, or it could happen over a period of time and you just get used to a, a, a building tolerance of uh, use of a particular intoxicating substance. That makes sense. Um, Now, there are two substances that absolutely require medical detox, and if not detox, medically can lead to death. Those substances are alcohol and benzodiazepines. For our listeners who don't know, that is like um, Xanax, Clonopin, et cetera. Um, You know, our bodies form a physical dependence on these substances. Um, With opiates, people just tend to feel like they're going to die and it's generally not lethal, but that isn't to say that it can't be complicated by added medical issues. Um, 
But if a person is using alcohol or benzos and wants to get treatment, what could they expect from a medical detox? And what are some resources around town for medical detox? Well, um, I'm I'm not the authority on that subject, but I think just generally, if you're going to one of the local psych hospitals, that's probably the best for like the the physical detox. Um, And generally, that's where I refer people to for, you know, the medical detox, because those are managed by, and you know, uh, addiction facilities are going to have a staff physician, but they're not going to be staffed by necessarily by a whole lot of doctors and nurses. So, you know, I'm kind of thinking about the, the one I um, worked at, you know, Seton Hospital, but there's, you know, several others locally at least. Okay, cool. Um, you know, I know one, one uh, issue sometimes people have is they're like, okay, I'm going to quit. Uh, you know, they stop drinking alcohol, they stop taking their benzos, but then withdrawal starts, you know, and I think that that's scary. And I think that, um, you know, I just want to say for people who are using alcohol and benzos, do not just stop cold turkey, um, mm-hmm. you know, because that can be very dangerous. Get yourself to a medical detox. Um, so with marijuana slowly becoming illegalized across the U.S., does this change the way treatment or diagnosis is being approached? And what would addiction to marijuana look like? Well, so um, uh, it, that's one that uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's it, the, the, the social attitude towards it is changing, number one. And so um, the, the clients that I've worked with, and that's all I can speak from is my experience. It's the ones that I've worked with. Uh, well, maybe I'm not, I want to make sure I understand the last part of that question. So what can you, can you restate the last part of that question as far as this? Sure. It's, um, is it changing the way treatment or diagnosis is being approached and what would addiction to marijuana look like? So, um, I think in one of my clients, um, a number of years ago who talked about how, um, they became uh, addicted, they felt, when they were in uh, middle school. And um, also talked in almost in the same breath about how uh, he felt like that was the birth of his uh, anxiety disorder. So, you know, that's one of the things that, although it's, you know, there's these clinical checkboxes that you have to check off as far as like what could potentially drive somebody's addiction is that you have this, you know, the reward system. Well, I don't feel anxious when I'm smoking weed, which is a lot of the clients that I work with who have cannabis use issues. They have anxiety issues too, but there may also be this, this, this juxtaposition of the, uh, the anxiety disorder with the cannabis use. And so if I, use the cannabis and the weed. I don't have the anxiety, but when I'm not using the, the weed or the cannabis, then I could get, you know, panic attacks. And so how do you deal with that? And that's, um, aside from, you know, all the check boxes that you have to go to increasing levels of tolerance and, you know, use in the way that it interfacts, inter- negatively affects your, your work or your professional, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think a lot of people have this, what I just described this juxtaposition of the it's almost like this, you know, the self-medication factor, but was the mode of self-medication also what gave birth to another disorder that they needed to self-medicate from. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing, but uh, I think it's, that's a lot of the productive conversations that I have with my clients revolve around because that, that, brings up the ambivalence is that I love using this thing, but I hate using this thing. And so how do I deal with that? So I was on a kind of a roundabout answer to your question, but. Um, no, that, that makes sense. Um, you know, my next question was, can addiction lead to other mental health issues? And it really sounds like it's a chicken and egg situation. Um, but like, I, I do know, like with bath salts, 
people who have done bath salts in the past have wound up with psychosis, um, whether that be paranoia or auditory or visual hallucinations. um, It's happened a lot. Yeah, and I I like to think that just the scare factor would have turned enough people away from that because I remember when that was, I was hearing about that about, sometime in the last five to 10 years. And I was like, Oh no, no. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. But that, yeah, I know that's, that's, that would seem like common sense, but that's not what drives people's addiction issues. It's not like I'm doing this risk benefit analysis. Otherwise, like nobody would use crystal meth because they know how bad it is for their health and how it rots their teeth or, right. you know, alcohol use disorder, especially over the long term. you know, no, I wouldn't want to, you know, prefer to pickle my liver, but, <laughs> but then that's, you know, that's some of the change talk that if you can get to it with other people, like, you know, I was consulting with somebody who had a client whose doctor had told them you're going to die if you don't stop drinking. And I'm thinking, okay, so, you know, that's important change talk. Cause if you can get them to weigh the options, if they even have a choice at that point anymore, then that's where they can, they can commit or recommit to recovery because they don't, they don't want to die. They don't want to suffer any more negative health consequences. Then that's where, you know, you can make some productive, uh, productive, reduce some productive work with your clients. Makes sense. Um, if somebody is using drugs on a recreational basis, what sorts of, factors should key them off to considering getting help, um, you know, meaning that it's, you know, just how, how does somebody tell that they're using recreationally versus in an addictive way, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, that's a great question. Uh, um, so I think, you know, part of it revolves around what is it doing to your relationships what effect is it having on you in a, a more broad sense? Is it, is your health deteriorating? Are you in, you know, of course the obvious questions of, you know, are you increasing more, doing more over time, increasing tolerance? Um, and, um, you know, I think a lot of, of the, the focus, you know, revolves around that because uh, otherwise people aren't going to have a lot of, inclination to do anything about it if it's not exacting a toll on their relationships if it's not costing them health wise and if they're not you know having to use more and more to get the same uh the same thing out of it as they were before okay um now if a close family member or friend sees a loved one struggling with addiction how would a person best support this family member or friend yeah, so that's um, another good uh, thing to consider because, you know, it's all about the relationship. And um, I, you know, and, and so for the family member to not burn a bridge, you know, the people with the addiction issues are very uh, prone to burning bridges. But for the family member to not burn the bridge, then that becomes important too because the family members suffer and can have their own um, issues themselves. So I would encourage folks to first express concern, not to get into lecturing or shaming, because unfortunately, if I'm concerned about somebody I know who has an addiction issue, if I lecture them or shame them, then I'm actually, uh, I'm actually serving to worsen the addiction unwittingly. But if I just say, you know, I've seen what is going on with you, I'm concerned. Uh, I, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. Then that's the thing that they most need to hear, whether they're able to hear you or really listen or not. So that's what I'd say. Okay. Now, as far as modalities go, what is typically recommended for treating addiction? So, um, most people would uh, say, well, you know, um, we should just, you know, get them into a 12-step recovery program. And, uh, and if they 
are able to gain traction with that, then that's the way to go. And I'd say, yeah, I'm all for 12 step recovery programs. Um, and yet that doesn't necessarily work for everybody. So, um, there are other, um, there are other you know, groups and programs that people can participate in, but usually it's one that involves some connection or relationship with a larger group. And um, there are a number of other groups out there in addition to the 12-step the groups that people can attend. Okay. What are the treatment options for addiction? Well, so the... Um, you know, people can self-present to either, you know, therapy. <clears throat> if it's a, a low-level enough addiction issue, if it becomes worse, then, um, you know, being in a, uh, a residential treatment facility or an inpatient can be uh, helpful. But there's also a lot of in-between, like um, with people who um, may need a, uh, they call a higher level of care than just therapy. There's the uh, inpatient or intensive outpatient programs. Uh, we've got a couple of different ones that, that work in Austin uh, where the clients can come, you know, a couple of days a week for several hours a day. And then there's also partial hospitalization, which I don't know how many of them are, are specifically for addictions. Um, but a lot of folks who have addiction issues have other health, mental health issues, which if you need to be in a partial hospitalization program, you're not living there, but you're there most of the day, every day. And uh, those can be important options for folks to take advantage of if they need them, if they're better suited for them. Yeah, makes sense. How effective is treatment for addiction? Well, so I don't have any hard data on that, and I, I've looked for it over the years, and I can't necessarily find much, but uh, the, the anecdotal data that I've picked up from uh, other colleagues is um, it's, it's not encouraging, and it doesn't necessarily um, increase with the amount of money that people spend on their treatment. Uh, for a lot of folks, it's just, it's kind of like a shot in the dark, but um, that's why I think the, that uh, the fifth pillar of uh, in the, the, my, the five pillars of addiction book, the commitment, I think is essential. It doesn't necessarily revolve around um, a particular program or a particular modality. It's more about, you know, am I willing to commit and recommit to my own recovery, my own sobriety? to stay with it. But, um, and I think just in the last 10 years, people are seeing that there's a, um, an avenue for, uh, for recovery programs that incorporate some level of harm reduction as opposed to just, you know, like you were talking about going cold Turkey and then we're like, you know, Oh my God, you know, I'm going through the DTs and I don't have any way to deal with it. So I know some people have done that, but that's, that could be a pretty scary way to go too. It's very dangerous. Yeah. Um, and, you know, treatment sometimes, especially for people who are uninsured, it can be extremely expensive. Um, now I know that many people in treatment for addiction tend to drop out before treatment is concluded. Why is this? And what are factors that help people quote, stick with the program? Yeah, that's another excellent question. And I think it, it has everything to do with um, ambivalence, getting stuck in ambivalence and then, you know, taking the, uh, the low road as it were. Um, but then also uh, I think shame is a big factor. Um, uh, a lot of people who have just, you know, tremendous shame, which also goes back to, for a lot of folks, the, uh, the ACEs, you know, the adult, adverse childhood experiences. They tend to be really driven by shame. And if I have enough shame going on, then I'm going to kind of be in more or less impelled to return to the addiction and to relapse. Um, so that, that's kind of my, my take on that question. Yeah. 
Yeah, I see that a lot with um, with folks who have addictions. Um, you know, what I see is somebody will relapse, and then there's like guilt and shame about the relapse, coupled with whatever you know damage was done in its wake, which then continues to perpetuate use or you know engagement in that activity, which you know it becomes a, a a cycle that's hard to get out of. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a vicious cycle. And, um, yeah, I, I heard somebody describe, um, addiction as being like, uh, a man running into the ocean, a man on fire running into the, uh, to the ocean to drown himself, to put out the fire. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's that, that analogy has always stuck with me because, uh, why would you want to drown yourself to put out the right. fire? You just need to have a couple of buckets to pour on yourself. So anyway. I like that. Um, what options are there locally for obtaining treatment for folks who are uninsured? Yeah, so that's another one I think that deserves a lot of attention because there just aren't a lot of them that I know of at least. Um, if they don't have insurance and they don't have uh, substantial fundings, which most people don't to just pay for something out of pocket um, is uh, Salvation Army. And uh, they've, they're actually one of the um, top rated charities year after year. And um, that's, I think one of the reasons is they provide low or no cost addiction recovery for folks who otherwise would not be able to even get a foothold or a toehold into some sort of recovery treatment. Also, I'm familiar with OSAR. I'm not sure if you've heard of OSAR. OSAR, yeah, thank you. I had forgotten about them. Yeah, I've had one uh, client uh, specifically who was working with OSAR. I don't know much about them, but um, they are a a lower no cost. Uh, Yeah, and I think they, I think people can access their services through the local mental health authority, which in Williamson County would be Blue Bonnet Trails, and in Travis County it would be uh, Integral Care. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, thank you because yeah, I forgot they were part of Integral Care. And then sometimes there there are some um, treatment programs that do accept uh, charity care, like uh, um, the Seton Ascension program they'll they will take a certain number of clients uh, on you know charity care uh, or a that's cool basis yeah but that's that's kind of it's very hit or miss so it's not necessarily reliable but that is another option for folks in some cases most folks know about the 12-step program approach including aa naca etc some people just know that this approach isn't for them are there any alternatives to these programs out there? Yes. And um, I've been thinking about going ahead and adding an additional page in the back of my, uh, my book, uh, because uh, just in the last couple of years, I've become aware of a couple of them that um, do, well, at least one or two of them meet locally here in the central Texas area. Uh, the one that I first learned about was called life ring and they're non 12 step based. They, uh, I think from what I picked up from some of my clients who I referred to them, they tend to be more focused on alcohol use disorder, which tends to be more predominant anyway, but there's also a smart recovery that I've heard about in the national, um, format or venue. Uh, and then uh, one that's more akin to or more amenable to people who like have Eastern philosophical inclinations called Dharma recovery. And uh, I think there's at least one or two others, but I, I, I'm not remembering the names of them off the top of my head. Very cool. I didn't know there were that many. Yeah. yeah. It's more than I expected. Quite a few. And now with you know COVID, people can conceivably as long as they have an internet connection, get on to a a Zoom meeting and they can be connected in a recovery meeting with anybody around the world who might, you know, also be into that kind of uh, recovery pathway. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. 
So what would you say are some common misconceptions about addiction? Well, so um, I think the main misconception um, that stands out in my mind is that there's some kind of moral component to it. Like people who have addictions are somehow morally flawed. Um, when I think these are actually people who have, by and large, some of the uh, strongest spiritual uh, aspects to them of a lot of people. Um, so I think the the, the moral uh, the moral judgment that's been implied uh, is one that's uh, definitely a a misconception um, and couldn't be further from the truth because there's some very morally upstanding people that suffer from addiction issues. Yeah, absolutely. That's a a good misconception to bring up. Um, Now switching gears a little bit more Mm -hmm. to you as a therapist, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples. So I, I've, I work a lot with, uh, like I mentioned earlier, you know, older adults, and um, I do uh, have quite a few uh, uh, BIPOC clients. Uh, work with uh, we call sexual minorities as well, gay, lesbian. Uh, I haven't worked with uh, any transgendered clients. Um, simply because I just don't uh, feel like I have the requisite training because there's special training uh, requirements that I think are incumbent on clinicians who work with uh, individuals who are um, transgendered. Um, but uh, you know, work with a lot of the other uh, a lot of the other groups. Cool. Okay. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? Well, so as I like to tell my clients when they first come in, you know, the first uh, session or two, I'll be asking a lot of questions. It's mainly so I can get a good background of kind of what's going on with you and what makes you tick. But uh, after that, we can talk a lot more like normal people. <laughs> and it's a lot more conversational, a lot more interactive, a lot, you know, more freewheeling, as it were. Yeah. How would you say your clients describe you or experience you? Well, so I think they would say that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm caring, I'm empathetic. Uh, I, I, I do get a good sense of what's going on with them. And uh, I'm willing to uh, really extend myself for their betterment. Um, but only to the extent that, you know, it's not becoming a situation where they're becoming overly dependent on me. I always want to foster a sense of the client's own independence and own innate sense of uh, innate experience of just being able to, uh, to, to, to be able to, uh, to recover and become, be better. Cool. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Well, I often laugh with my clients. I don't find myself crying with my clients except on rare occasions. Um, but um, I'm always moved by the uh, just the heroism of my clients for everything that they've had to uh, face and overcome in their lives. Because almost to a person, you know, very few of them have been unscathed by the you know, all the, the, the potential uh, damages that, that life will throw their way. How do you define holding space for someone? Yeah, so that's another one that you know, I like to ponder. I think it's uh, more about kind of being able to um, explore issues with my clients and being to help them to identify their pain, their fear, and then to help give them the space to just express and experience their feelings because a lot of them come from backgrounds where feelings weren't identified, they weren't recognized, they weren't honored. And if I can 
give that to my clients, then that helps to undo, you know, potentially decades of programming in the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Well, um, if I can account, my, my brother, who's, you know, about as seasoned a therapist as I know, is one of those. <laughs> and he doesn't, you know, give me much advice. I don't ask him for that much therapy advice. But one of them that he got from one of his was when you're confronted with the difference, when, you, you know, there's the, you, you read about the way clients are from therapy books. So there's like this concept of the bird in the book. <laughs> you read about the bird in the book and then you see the bird in the tree. And when you hear the bird in the tree singing and you read about the bird in the book and those two don't agree, you know, always go with the bird in the tree <laughs> as far as what they're saying. I love that. How they strike you. Yeah. That's cool. As you were saying that, I, I was muted, but there were birds chirping over here. That was funny. Yeah, very, very, <laughs> very appropriate. Um, what have you learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Well, so I think that I've, one thing, if nothing else, that I've realized and I've learned a lot is that there's so much more that we as individual and collective human beings have in common than any of us realize. And uh, simply by listening to people's stories and giving a space for them to tell their stories, I understand there's the, the tremendous commonality. There's so many differences differences in the stories what's underneath the stories is essentially the same for everybody um, but unless we listen to each other's stories we don't have a chance to learn and appreciate that yeah what do you do to take care of yourself so um, I, I tried my best to uh, you know, to observe a healthy diet, get enough exercise, uh, get enough rest, uh, have family time, and uh, my own, you know, therapy and recovery work. Because um, like my uh, consultant that I work with says, you know, uh, I, she always asks me, do you take care of yourself, Scott? Are you taking care of yourself? And I say, yeah. And she says, well, do we have a choice? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's like a rhetorical question. Right. <laughs> um, big question here. How would you define happiness? Yeah, that's another good one. Um, I think it's as much of anything as a, a, a freedom from not having your, your needs and wants met. So like, in other words, if, if, if my needs and wants are met, essentially, then I can consider myself to be in a state of happiness. And that's all it takes because people can do what they need to do and what they really want to do once that's taken care of. Yeah. A um, couple of vulnerable questions, although you've kind of answered one of them. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? Well, uh, I can't think of one that's most, but one of the typical ones that comes up is um, like if, you know, we're in session and I might forget, you know, some inf important information about the client and I'm like, you know, oh man, what, so what is that? <laughs> I, was I know. Grasping for, oh, what was that? To, what, you know, and then uh, I might even actually forget a name, you know, here and there and I'm like, oh. So, the worst, you know, I don't think people realize how much information we have to keep in our heads. I mean, we have our clients' names, clients' partners' names, family members' names, um, you know, histories, um, pronouns. I mean, you know, there's a ton of different things to remember. Yeah, so that can be pretty daunting. Next vulnerable question. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? So yes and yes. Very good. Same. Now, I know we've covered a lot of ground, but not all the ground. Um, 
Is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you and or addiction? Well, um, yeah, I mean, with all the good questions that you've asked, I, I can't really think of any, Noah. Um, maybe this is the way you intentionally planned it, <laughs> but you didn't ask about this. Or you they're like, oh, that's the next question I need. <laughs> I need to make sure I ask about that. But yeah, no, nothing other than what I, uh, what I already told you. Well, thanks for being on the show, Scott. It was good to have you. Yeah, you're most welcome, Noah. I'm glad we could uh, connect in this way, especially uh, considering uh, you know what uh, we, we all went through as a, uh, a city and a state and region in the last uh, week or so. I know it's been it's been uh, unreal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So seek therapy help if you need it. <laughs> We're out there. Yeah, we are out there. Well, thanks again, Scott. Okay, you're most welcome, Noah. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Next week's episode will feature Lindsay Tubbs, licensed professional counselor, who will be speaking about her area of specialty, utilization management, health insurance, and advocacy. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmit.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest podcasts rely solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www dot patreon that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash next quest podcast or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash about next quest podcast you can also support the podcast by liking our facebook page until next question this is noah garcia signing off